Welcome to episode 291 with my guest, Sarah Halfricht. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's uh, not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck, hopefully. Um... The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Mentalpod is also the uh, Twitter handle you can follow me at. And uh, go check out our website. Uh, fill out our anonymous surveys, and maybe we'll read yours on the air. Uh, that's a big, big part of this show. For those of you that are, might be new to the show, um, because I believe this episode um, this week is being um, highlighted on iTunes homepage. Thank you, Steve, over at, uh, at uh, iTunes for being such a good supporter of our, our podcast. Um, so for those of you that are new, generally an, audio, a, a, uh, an episode is me interviewing somebody for an hour or so, and then I read an hour or so of uh, listener surveys and emails and stuff like that. So um, let me read. Oh, be before I uh, read a, a couple of, uh, and I always read one or two surveys before we start the interview. Um, I want to remind you, LA PodFest is coming up uh, September 23 through 25. I'm going to be performing Sunday night, the 25th. And... Um, an amazing lineup of people there at PodFest. And uh, my guest is going to be uh, the a comedian and host of Road Stories, uh, Marie Valeriano. Great guy. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to Marie. I see him once a, once a month at, uh, at poker, and we, we make each other laugh. But I'm, I'm going to get deep down into uh, what it was like for him to be raised by a, uh, a preacher. And nobody who was a stand-up comic uh, had a great childhood or doesn't have issues. So um, anyway, I digress. Go to LAPodFest.com, and you can either see it uh, in person here in L.A., or you can watch it uh, stream or watch it archived. And um, tickets to watch it streamed or archived are $25, but if you use the offer code HAPPY, uh, you get 5 bucks off. And uh, I get a percentage of uh, that. I think seven dollars I get from uh, from that, which uh, which can add up. And we always need more money here on the podcast. All right. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this was filled out by Ghost in the Corner, and he writes about his Aspergers. Sorry, I couldn't hear you over the clock ticking, the air conditioner running, the humming lights, and the two people talking across the room. What's your name again? Uh, a woman who calls herself, I want to be a hobbit. I want to be a hobbit. You get a simple life and two breakfasts. What could be better? And uh, she writes about being a uh, sex crime victim, uh, watching videos of men comforting babies before leaving the house so that I feel safer. Thank you for sharing that. that um, I don't think the average person... I don't think somebody who's not a, a survivor truly understands all the facets of a person's life that sexual trauma affects. Uh, Cookie Monster writes about his anxiety. I have to go to an exam, but if I fail, my life is over. 
maybe if I hurt myself, I'll survive one more day. About his codependency, I don't deserve to be happy if you aren't. Great, thank you. Those are so good. Um, and then uh, this one is filled out by Smoking Drinking Shithead. I'm a fan. I'm a fan right away. Uh, she shares about her anxiety. Uh, the friend who const- the friend who constantly points out flaws in you, reminding you that you are putting on weight, being overly awkward in social situations. Then she tells you that you need to get your shit together. But if anyone sees the struggle, you're a failure. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Sarah Haufricht, uh, who is a writer, and a listener sent me a link to an article that you wrote in Salon, and um, it it um, it really moved me. I thought it was um, something that people needed to hear, and so I retweeted it, and then I thought, I saw that you're from Los Angeles on your... Uh, I think it was your Twitter account or maybe on your byline in Salon, but I thought, um, let's ask her to come be a guest and see if she would read that and then maybe also talk about your relationship with your mom. Why don't we, why don't we kick off, um, by having you read that piece that you wrote? Sounds okay. great. And what is the name of it? Um, the name is I lived, loved with and lost my mother to borderline, borderline personality disorder. Okay. Six months after my mom's suicide, there is still a 12-pound lasagna she made in my freezer, and I can't will myself to defrost it or throw it away. In case you have guests, my mother had said, hoisting the slab of meat, noodles, and cheese from her refrigerator bag into my freezer. I took this to mean, you should have more friends over. (laughs) Now that she's gone... I realized my translation was wrong. She was saying, I wish I had more friends to feed because I feel alone. She'd had plenty of friends once, plenty of dinner parties, but that all ended years ago. Her friends had fallen from her favor over bizarre arguments of which I'd only hear the murky details, or they'd been driven away by my mom's general operating procedures a consistent pattern of destruction to herself and others. Some background. My dad divorced her when I was four. She tried to stab him with a kitchen knife. Her best friend became estranged and embittered around the time I graduated college. 
their plan to manage an artisan cheese business went wildly astray. Her second husband, my sister's dad, left when I was 25. She spent most of their 15-year marriage disparaging him. I don't know how he lasted as long as he did. Actually, I do. He was well-fed. As much as she was stubborn, deceitful, and conniving, my mom was equally passionate, charming, and generous. I can hear her humming Dave Brubeck while dancing with the watering hose in the backyard. I can see her leaning over a simmering pot of chili, stirring it with one hand and helping me finish my math homework with the other. Even now, I can recall from memory the taste of her tiramisu, the dessert she made for my surprise 21st birthday party, an event she organized and executed flawlessly. The garden and the kitchen were her sanctuary, but they were also her dominion over which to rule. She could exert her wishes over ingredients that had no words or free will. Her cakes were never dry or burned. Plants grew exactly the way she planted them. People, on the other hand, she could not control. My mother treated anyone disagreeing with her or disobeying her wishes like an enemy combatant, especially her loved ones. This didn't make sense to me until I realized my mom was suffering from a mental illness called borderline personality disorder, BPD. According to the Mayo Clinic website, this is a common personality disorder with roughly 3 million reported cases a year. The National Institute for Mental Health estimates the number of BPD cases in the U.S. at roughly 1% of the population. Their emotions are like exposed nerve endings, says Dr. Helen Gruz, past president of the L.A. County Psychological Association and a forensic and clinical psychologist for more than 30 years. Those with BPD have a distinctively polarized view of relationships, idealizing themselves and others, but one mistake and the person is totally devalued, Gruz says. Living with a person with BPD is, in Dr. Gruz's words, like living with Mount Vesuvius, always on the verge of erupting. There is mounting research that those with BPD lack brain chemical functions related to empathy, the ability to relate and understand the feelings of someone else. In a study last September cited in the online psychiatric journal Helio, researchers found those diagnosed with BPD had reduced activity in brain regions that support empathy suggesting that people with more borderline personality disorder traits have a more difficult time understanding and or predicting how others feel. Those with BPD are capable, according to Gruz, of being empathetic one minute, but threatening and verbally abusive the next. Demonstrations of kindness and love must compete with their day-to-day -day feelings of chronic emptiness, rage, and fear of abandonment. BPD takes one's need to be right to a toxic and oftentimes, as in my mom's case, lethal level. Rates of suicide with BPD are around 10%. It's pretty high. Snapshots of my upbringing don't look much different from plain old questionable parenting. For example, if I forgot to call my mom upon arriving somewhere to let her know I was safe, she threatened to call the police. 
or highway patrol. And a few times she did. As a result, I became obsessively punctual and overly attentive. If I shared an accomplishment of mine with her, she would be overjoyed momentarily, but would also tell me how she would have done it better. I became keenly observant of her methods, never questioned her authority, and strived to be the best at everything, because anything less was a massive disappointment in her eyes. Any disagreement, big or small, merited a strong reproach. It could trigger her to throw something, to storm off screaming, to drink even more than she normally did. In college, I finally grew brave enough to tell her she had a drinking problem, but after three pointless attempts at an intervention, my efforts seemed futile. Her reality, no matter how factually incorrect or emotionally unjust, was all she could see. I resigned my life to, I resigned to spend my life proving that I was not her. I'd place a mental check mark in the not my mom box when I hit a milestone. Attain a college degree, check that box. Still speaking to my dad after age 21, check. Not addicted to alcohol or painkillers, check. In retrospect, being on constant red alert for mom-like tendencies was concerning. But something more insidious was happening to me. The worse my mom's situation became, the more I felt responsible for her. The more I felt ashamed that I couldn't solve her problems. Four years ago, my younger sister stopped speaking to my mom altogether. I understood. I might have done the same had my first 18 years been exclusively under my mother's roof. Growing up, I at least lived with my father half the time. I had time away from my mom that my sister never had. When she closed off communication with my mom, I became the last relative to stay at close range. This meant accepting her lasagnas, quiches, and homegrown vegetables, managing her DUIs, her unpaid bills, her storage unit filled with canned goods and cookbooks. When she asked me to forge her doctor's signature on a prescription pad she'd swindled from the office, I declined with my best friend in the room for both moral support and protection if she acted out. When she called the reverend two weeks before my wedding to ask him not to marry me, she told him I was too afraid to back out. This was, of course, a complete fabrication. Years before, she lost another dear friend in a similar clandestine maneuver when she disapproved of the fiancé. Over time, the wasteland of ruined friendships, marriages, and business ventures grew as plentifully as the tomatoes in her garden, rose as reliably as her sourdough starter. It took a long time for someone else to point out that my mom might have an actual disease instead of what I referred to as her homemade recipe for crazy. I was 30, married, in therapy, and my psychologist gave me a copy of Stop Walking on Eggshells, a book about borderline personality disorder. The book outlined in startling detail every dark shade of my mom's psyche, intense fear of abandonment, explosive anger, extreme idealization and devaluation of others and of the self, impulsive behavior, substance abuse, self-harm. At the time, the research and advice from the book provided me with answers. Its author, Paul Mason, writes, the sacrifices that people make to satisfy the borderlines they care about can be very costly. 
and the concessions may never be enough. Before long, more proof of love is needed, and another bargain must be struck. Children of BPD parents routinely become overly sensitive to the moods and needs of others, overbearing, quick to wound, overly critical of themselves. Did I possess these traits? Check. For me, the tools I developed to deal with my mom cost me the ability to navigate conflict in a healthy way, to stand up for myself, to allow someone else to take care of me when I needed it. Educating myself on her struggles, working with a therapist and becoming aware of her effect on my behavior set me on a path to build the much needed emotional resources I lacked. I learned to take responsibility for what was in my control and let go of what wasn't. It was not my job to fix everything. For the first time, my mother made sense to me. And understanding her, having empathy, was something I could give her more fully, even if she didn't have much to give in return. It allowed me to see the intellectual strengths, the silly quirks, and the creativity she gave me, not just my shortcomings and rediscover gratitude for the sum total of her influence. It allowed me to see the whole her, and the whole me. That was several years ago, and now she's gone. Even with this self-awareness and insight, I am left feeling lost again, and with more questions than answers. Was there anything more I could have done for her? Did anything I do matter? Did I enable her to cause more damage? I'd spent years, after all, trying to help, to get her into AA, give her enough money to stay afloat after her bankruptcy, take her to various doctors for the endless slew of medical ailments she developed or psychosomatically manufactured. The dialogue in my head reminds me of the unending analysis surrounding the 2008 financial crisis, measuring damages, the bailout, whom to blame, whether we did too much, not enough. My mother's death is like this, a shattering moment in my historical timeline that can never be undone, but can be forever deconstructed and reinterpreted in my mind as I look into the past or when new information emerges. I delivered the news of my mom's death to an old friend of hers, someone who'd known my mom in her late teens, They'd lost touch many years ago, but she was one of the few close friends with whom my mom parted company on good terms. Her reaction was striking. She said she was saddened, but not surprised. Even then, your mom seemed troubled, off. She didn't react well to other people, to conflict. But she was a great friend. A week before her death, my mom and I assembled a small Weber grill she brought me as a gift. Let me rephrase. My mom bought me a grill, probably with money I had given her to make rent that month, and then she assembled it herself because she said I was doing it wrong. <laughs> she was quite the master craftsman and tinkerer in and out of the kitchen as long as all of the items succumbed to her personal system of logic. She didn't see reason to change course if her direction conflicted with the instruction manual or, say, the natural laws of physics. You never really need these, she said, tossing some screws aside. 
I learned to stay quiet unless she posed an imminent danger to myself or to others. Being non-reactive, depriving her of fodder to fuel an emotional eruption was a handy technique I'd learned to keep us both on good behavior. But fear and worry still churned inside me, no matter how calm I appeared on the surface. When I look back on that day, this is what I see. The years of trying eventually gave way to the years of accepting that she was never going to get better. She was not only unwilling, but also unable. I was able to find moments of joy with my mom, to give her what I could, rather than giving in to her mania, to fill some of that loneliness with a daughter's love. It was hard work most of the time, but I came to believe that her work, the work of living with an untreated mental illness for 60 years, was much harder. On a warm August day, just after noon, I got a call from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. That morning, she had driven to her favorite place in the world, a beach in Montecito, close to the former estate of her idol, Julia Child. I'll never know for sure, but I'd guess she'd walked along the sand as the sun rose, listening to the waves and the intermittent whistle sounding from the coastline Amtrak trains. And then she stepped in front of one. I couldn't eat the rest of the day. Walking into my house that night, I wasn't sure what to do, or even who I would be in this new world, where I was not fearing the call I already received, worrying what havoc she was causing. I was released by one kind of sorrow in that moment. Then I spotted the last three tomatoes she'd given me, small and solitary, ripening in a large white pottery bowl. My mother was the only person I knew to pronounce the word tomatoes instead of tomatoes and to correct anyone who pronounced it otherwise. <laughs> I would never hear that word her way again. And I was overtaken by another kind of sorrow. The sadness that I would never again see the person I had spent most of my life trying not to become and without whom I would not be who I am. I wasn't the least bit hungry, but I put a pot of water on the stove for pasta and cried while I sliced up the tomatoes. I mixed them delicately with basil, olive oil, and sea salt, and I ate them for her, digesting my loss. Several days after the call, her suicide note arrived in the mail. It said, I love you always and forever. I'll be the angel in the sky, listening and granting wishes. That same day, my sister sent me a picture of the largest squash I'd ever seen. Before going to work, she'd had a casual discussion about making vegetable lasagna. And hours later, a coworker happened to offer up this green giant, 
literally the size of a caveman's club. My sister's next message was no surprise. Mom is speaking to us through zucchini. <laughs> there was a levity to this moment, an enchantment specific to grief. I can finally talk to mom again, my sister says. It's easier now that she can't talk back, I say. Then came the laughter. Then came the tears. The Weber grill she gave me and built for me sits on my patio in the place where I took the last picture of her. It works like a dream. I've held on to the extra screws she didn't use as if they were good luck charms. As for the mysterious zucchini, my sister made that veggie lasagna, but that's not all. She made zucchini bread and zucchini fritters and still had more left over. It was just too much. We didn't know what to do with it all. Thank you for reading that. You're thank welcome. You, thank you for writing that. That's... Um, It's such a complete picture of the complexity of somebody who is sick and can't see it. She was a beautiful, disastrously complicated woman. And it's funny, when I set out to write it, I wrote it with such what I consider, you know, selfish intentions. It was just to get out all of the sadness and the grief and the frustration. And it felt, felt very confessional and it felt very self-serving to do it. And yet when I ended up actually sharing it with other people and discovering how much people related to parts of my mother or the entire story and connecting with people. It was, um, it was the most rewarding thing to know that I was saying something that allowed other people to deal with their own pain or their own grief or their own anger at people that were affecting them in a similar way. I, th I think it's also um, important to note um, that there are a lot of people who do learn how to manage uh, their borderline personality disorder, uh, to learn tools, how to deal with the volcanic feelings and the impulsivity. And, um, and what you shared is just but one person who, yeah. who shares this. And I think that's an important thing because it's... It's a personality disorder that um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lack of empathy for. And um, well, it's hard to have empathy when a person isn't giving empathy it is. back. You know, people are so reactive just as the way yeah. that we're built. So when all of a sudden you're faced with someone who isn't listening to you, who isn't understanding what you're saying because they're caught up in something else that's going on inside themselves. It's just hard to know how to deal with it. Yeah. Because I wish that my, my mom had had the tools to 
treat herself. I wish that she had known and that things about her life were different. But it seems like over the past year, I've been able to say that she, in her own fairly fucked up way, did the best that she could. Mm-hmm. And that maybe 60 years was more than she would have had under different circumstances, you know? Um, and there's no way for me to ever, you can't go back. You just can't look at it in that, in those terms. And I think that she, she really, really wanted like one of her goals in life. She really, really wanted her daughters to reach their potential she always talked about that a lot. She always wanted to like almost any parent that I've ever known is want to like give their kids a better life than they had or, um, you know, give their, their kids the opportunity to reach their own potential. And if that's the marker of a good parent, then I will say that I think that my mom succeeded. I think especially when you consider what she was up against that she so many mental illnesses tell you that you don't have a a mental illness Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. a warped reality that is your normal and you know until i understood my alcoholism i couldn't see how self-centered and narcissistic and um cruel Mm -hmm. i had been and could be and it was eye-opening and I try to have that same empathy when somebody else um, is walking around without any Those kind of tools. clarity yeah. or tools. Um, yeah. But it's hard because addicts and people who have mental illnesses that are untreated are a fucking handful. Oh, it's terrible. And I, the way that it described it, it, it helped me was someone describing it like, um, like someone who has a different type of disease that isn't a mental illness, mm-hmm. deciding not to treat that illness and saying, I'm not going to take this medication. I'm not going to do anything for it. How would we think about that? And so if you have someone who has this challenge, who's just not participating in their own recovery, then, you know, that they're not going to do so hot. Yeah, it's it's. One of the hardest things is watching somebody suffer when you can see that there is help mm-hmm. available. Mm-hmm. And I guess sometimes it's just not meant to be. Yeah. But it, I think that's the thing that's so heartbreaking is it's like watching somebody live their life in a prison and the door isn't locked. And they just, no matter how many different ways you try to get them to see it. You, they're decorating the inside. They're decorating yep, the inside. Exactly, yeah. And uh, sometimes I think, you know, if, if, if you're able to hang in there like, like you did, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for, um, I believe that my mom uh, also has borderline personality disorder. Um, and I, I just couldn't. It's the opposite for me. Like I have so much respect for you and my sister to be able to have, you know, the chutzpah and the strength to say, I'm sorry, but no, and turn away because that's a different type of strength. 
Well, that's funny because to me, I always view it as weakness that I just mm-hmm. couldn't hang in there until, until the, uh, she's still alive. But I was hit with such guilt today. I was driving and a Tom Petty song came on and I remember in, I was a sophomore in high school and she brought a tape home, a cassette. This is how, how long ago it was, how old I am. <laughs> and she had been in a department store and liked the song and asked, who the band was yeah. and and got the tape for me and um those are the things that break my heart is because that's how complex people are mm-hmm. you know i remember her coming back from her and my dad went to england and i think it was 78 and um elvis costello had just gotten big there and she went into a record shop and said what album can i bring home for my sons mm-hmm. that they won't have heard of yet that's going to be popular and of course, my brother and I were like, "Who's this fucking nerd?" Right. On the, on the, you know, and then two years later, I'm in college, going, "This is the this best." Is the best, yeah. yeah. Um, but those are the things that that. Well, we hold on to those beautiful moments of these incredibly imperfect people. Um, I just wish, f- for me, it was enough, but it wasn't enough. Yeah. Anymore. Um, what had you decided that you were just going to hang in there no matter what, or were you thinking about cutting contact with her? How, how often did that battle play in your head? When my mom was alive, I was angrier a lot more of the time because I was taking care of her and shouldering a lot of her her shit um physically you know like her her, literally her stuff and she had untreated addiction right i mean right talk about a perfect storm but what kept me in contact with her i'd say two competing two two things number one my my deep-seated fear that i no longer have to think about which is my mom's gonna be homeless if i don't take care of her the idea of that and I don't know why I've I always feel like I've had this like interest in like watching homeless people how they interact and I just find that whole idea of living on the street terrifying and fascinating and when I would think about my mom over the past 10 years that was always in the back of my my head because she was always living on the cusp Mm. of someone's generosity I can tell you this, her shopping cart would have been very neatly organized. Oh, it would have been gorgeous. <laughs> and she probably would have been found, like found a way, like a hot plate or to like be yeah. cooking something on the yeah. top of a abandoned car yeah. or something. Um, she was incredibly, incredibly creative and capable when she specifically decided it was time for her to do it. And if it was on someone it was inconvenient for someone else then it didn't matter you know she would show up at my house at 9:30 in the morning with you know an entire um you know four course meal saying like oh i just just stopping by <laughs> you know it's it's just the little things that i was doing it, it seems like such an active uh mental illness you know as opposed to depression which expresses itself so often through inactivity Mm -hmm. and ceiling staring right she she definitely 
um, resembled like mania at points where it just she needed something to keep herself busy. I mean, it just anything that she could do that she felt competent in. And so she felt competent with food. She felt competent with gardening. She felt competent with decorating. So she, she would be at someone else's house or we'd be at a, like a party and she would go into the other room instead of talking to people and start like decorating. Or she would see uh, like food that someone else had prepared at an event and she would sniff it and maybe like go and start rummaging through someone else's cupboards and adding things to the food to make sure that it was the yeah. way that she, cause she could make it better because she was so talented. And if it went wrong, then, of course, then all the sadness came in and the worthlessness and such black and white. Thinking. It was always just black and white with everything. I remember at um, at my wedding, she showed up with an entire um, plate of hors d'oeuvres that she forced on the wait staff <laughs> to serve, in addition to the beautiful hors d'oeuvres that were part of the, oh the ceremony. God. And I remember just seeing it in passing because I was around taking photos and being like, "What? what is going on over there? And I luckily didn't hear about it until <laughs> after the fact. But that's a very what I would say, you know, a very mom story that it was just, she decided this was what, what was going to go on and didn't really matter what else was going on. But what did you think or feel when you were reading that, that piece? If anything, reading it aloud is difficult. Like I feel like a, like, like a, a wrenching in my gut. And there's also this, um, this sensation a lot of the time that comes up of feeling guilty, like I'm capitalizing on this awful thing that happened to oh me. Oh my God, that, uh, that know? never even occurred to me because it's so beautifully heartfelt and, um, important. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I just, I think of her. Even though I don't believe in an afterlife, I think of her looking down on me as I as I read it. I, I did too. Yeah. As, as you were reading it, I. Um... It's really funny when I was going through all of her things. Um, she had left notes of like she. You know, everything was very organized and very planned out. Even though it all just was so surprising when it actually happened. But in the notes about things she wanted to go to certain people and stuff that she wanted donated to certain foundations, because she was also very generous, in one of the last notes where she said something like, the pain has been too great, and I'm just tired, and I don't want to continue to live like this, I turned the page and, see, and, and, and she said, Sarah, there's this section in the book that you're writing that's bothering me, and I think you need to stop being so negative and droll, and you really need to... I mean, she was very like... <laughs> right to the end. <laughs> exactly. Right to the end. Right, right to the to end. Right to the end. Um, so I'm sure that there's something in here. <laughs> yeah. If she was, if she had a, the distance editorial view that she'd have yeah. a problem with. I kind of had this image um, towards the end of the piece of, of your mom, um, of her, I don't know, this sounds really corny and new agey, but of her somehow being able to hear it um, and... And her spirit being at peace and her almost finding humor 
in how complex she was? I really hope so, because my mother had a lot of wonderful qualities, but a sense of humor was not one of them. And um, thankfully, I have one of the funniest people in the universe as my father. And um, I think that even if she can't find how funny she was, I think that, like I said, she wanted... She wanted me and she wanted my sister to be able to do something meaningful with our lives. And I do feel like sharing her story and having other people feel like it's helped them in some way is giving her life meaning. And she really, really wanted, she would talk about that a lot, how she wanted to leave the world better um, and it's probably not in the way she ever planned. It never is for any of us. Right, and, and how know? boring would that be yeah. if we all had the life that we planned out from the get-go? So, you know, that's it's just her, um, her story will continue to fascinate me as I go back and look at it. I will continue to look at all the stuff that I have of hers, and there were so many parts of this the process of you know, reading through all the stuff that she read and meeting people that she met in the last few days of her life and calling people to tell them about her passing and learning all these little things about her life that I didn't know before. And I plan to use all that stuff because, you know, by the grace of whatever universe new agey stuff you know i'm a writer and i can honor her in that way or that's what i i want to try and do Uh, when i have time uh after my full-time job (laughs) and what is your uh full-time job i work for a philanthropist um and i'm a communications director so it's um not anything i ever anticipated doing with my career i figured i would be a starving poet um, but this pays the bills a lot better than that. Uh, well, it's, you have a real knack for capturing, um, painting a picture of things. You know, oh, it's something you. I always try to do with this podcast in choosing guests is, um, because it's, it's not something that, that everybody can can do at least to the degree I think that that you did where it's it felt like I was watching a movie um well in a way I felt like one of the things about nonfiction, as difficult as as writing is in general because writing's awful and all writers generally hate writing most of mm -hmm. the time um I feel like it's like a lot of this was plotted out for me you know like this stuff was real this happened and so I feel like I got all of the skeleton of it and the actual reality, and it was my job to find the through line for mm-hmm. this. And, I mean, there's so much other stuff that didn't make it in here or things in the original draft. I'm I'm so grateful to, um, I think it's Dave David Jones at Modern Love at the New York Times for rejecting my first draft. Yeah. And I was so angry and I was like, how dare you? This is the most important thing I've ever read. I've ever written for myself. And 
then I found an incredible editor to make it longer and more researched and be, you know, be what it is. And I am really, really proud of what it turned into. And and so Salon published it instead of the Times? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, how do you think, I mean, you touched on some of it in your piece, but um, what are the issues that you uh, struggle with? You know, you said, um, you know, being overly sensitive to what other people are feeling or what they might need, mm-hmm. probably at the expense of your own sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Is anxiety a thing for you? Anxiety is absolutely a thing. I don't, um, I haven't been prescribed any medication other than for a brief period when, um, when my marriage was kind of dissolving and, um, I, I, uh, took a it's called like deplin it's like a folic acid supplement Mm -hmm. that apparently can like go through the blood brain barrier easily and um otherwise when it comes to anxiety it's stuff that's very like in the moment where i'll say something and and think that it's funny and a person didn't laugh and i'll just start like sweating profusely (laughs) and then i'll just go into the bathroom and be like thing you know you just calm calm down and I, it's okay. I do that once a week in front yeah. of a microphone. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I sweat so hard sometimes just, when I'm doing the podcast. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think they make uh, deodorant that's like anxiety prone. You know, they have like the medical stuff, but not like yeah. that's like mental sweating. Um so when it comes to making decisions where I'm trying to read someone else, I, I tend to be pretty good at that in a lot of areas. Like with my job, I feel like one of the, the aspects of my job that's critical is reading um, other people's reactions and, under, and making sure that a person is understood mm-hmm. um, when I'm you know negotiating a contract or just talking to a bunch of people that don't know each other in a room. But when it comes to something like, where do you want to go for happy hour? And I say like, oh, there's this place. And the person goes like, okay. I'm like, was that a positive okay? Mm -hmm. Was that a neutral okay? Was that an okay that actually meant? And that's normal, I guess. But I also feel like it's a little, "Mm, maybe you're freaking out about just the word okay a little bit too much kind of thing. Yeah, a nuance is so hard, I think, for the children of of narcissistic um, people that that, that make stuff all about them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a I mention this all the time on the podcast, but there's this great article called Co-Narcissism by Dr. Alan Rappaport, and you can find it online. And um, black and white thinking is also one of the things that children of uh, narcissists, uh, because I believe borderline personality has a strong narcissist oh, yeah. component to Big it. Big time, yeah. Um, and um, it's so hard to um, be comfortable with something that's in that in that gray area and I too struggle with taking what people say at face value instead of always just tossing out what they say and go what did their face say what did their body language say what's my history with this person what are my needs what have I done in the last half hour that might have pissed them off what do they think of me what did other people say and all you know all they it's said an entirely was, separate conversation going on yeah. at the same time you know maybe all they said was you know it's uh it's three o'clock i gotta get going 
And you're like, oh, you hate me. You don't want to hang out with me because you're leaving. <laughs> you think I'm a werewolf. Right. <laughs> uh, I totally get that. Uh, what What else would you like to, to share with the, um, before we do some fears and, uh, and loves, um, what else would you like to share with the listener? Things that you struggle with, um, things about your relationship with your mom. And we're coming up on the one year anniversary of yeah, her, her yeah. death. I feel like one of the things that, um, well, I struggled with when I was younger before I had any realization that my mom was sick was that I struggled from like my senior year of high school on and off through college with bulimia hmm. and the, um, the origins of that, you know, I was super type A. There's nothing weird about me having a struggle with an eating disorder based on my like history of wanting to please people and having her, you know, be so into cooking and constantly wanting me to eat everything. Um, and plus, bulimia is something that you have complete control complete over. control over. So I'm just like it's like I was custom built for that. Yes, disorder. even though ironically, you have no control over bulimia. Right? <laughs> you know, but, yeah. Um, but the act you the have complete act, control over. Yeah, the disease you have no control over. over. Exactly. Right. But the actual act. Yeah. And when I re when I started to to when some kind of light bulb came off. Um, uh, turned on for me was when I left and went to college and just stopped that behavior entirely. And it was so easy. And I was so happy and away from my family. And then I go back for Christmas break and it was just like, I couldn't handle it. And I went right back into just making sure that I ate as much as my mom wanted to. And then, you know, just puking my guts out in the bathroom because it was something that made everything easier and made everything I didn't have to think about it. I could just deal with regulating my emotions in front of my mom. And that's when all of a sudden I was like, hmm, maybe there's something having to do with issues with my mom that are that are at play here. And, you know, fortunately, um, I had a, fortunately, I had a terrible experience with the nurse at my college um, where she just basically threw me a big uh, container of Prozac and was like, that's your that's your solution. I was like, mm, I'm not sure if that's the thing that's going to help me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That was the solution for um, like dealing with eating disorders was Prozac. And that just wasn't going to work for me. Um, so I I fortunately um, I started I started running very seriously um, and kind of realizing how amazing it is that our bodies can do these incredible athletic feats. And that was a turning point for me. And so I was able to find my own solution that wasn't medical to, um, you know, start to, to not having a, an eating disorder any longer, even though I kind of feel like it's that whole alcohol, alcoholism thing where it's always mm -hmm. part of you. Um, so it's like you found a healthy way to, to soothe yourself absolutely. and to have something that you had yep. autonomy over. Exactly, to have control over and to feel like I was respecting myself and taking care of myself. And so I didn't feel like I had to do that anymore. Has the way you approached running ever been self-flagellating or punishing? No. That's great. No, actually, like running for me is a way to tune out the um, all the different conversations in my head. I'm a very serious introvert, um, and so I'm always kind of inside myself. And when I'm running, I just think about my breathing, 
and I can just think about my feet on the pavement or on the ground, and it's really recharging and soothing for me. Yeah. How long of the runs do you go for? Well, now I'm building back up because I had I was I, I ran track in high school, and I have kind of a history of shin splints. Um, they're so painful. Oh, they're really rough. So right now, um, I'm just at three miles, and um, my sister and I are planning to do a half marathon wow. next year. But I ran running a marathon was what was really a huge turning point for me. And then I got into endurance cycling, so like century rides. Wow. Um, so long distance stuff, which I haven't done that kind of stuff in a long time. But I used to do like a solid like six to eight mile run because I, I live in Culver City off the like uh, mm -hmm. Bologna Creek path all the way out to Marina del Rey. And it's just beautiful. And I um, I think that even though it tunes out all the conversations that are going on in my head, all of a sudden when I have like runner's high, I'll have like a moment where I think about a memory that's very crucial to myself. All, all of a sudden I'll be back at a Christmas in my childhood, or I'll think about a soccer game that I played in high school. And it's really freaky. And it's fascinating to me that somehow exercise gets my brain to suddenly go to places. It must be when people take drugs and all of a sudden something happens with the enzymes or, um, you know, just synapses are opening up to different places. That's what I get out of exercise. What issues or aspects to your personality do you have that you struggle with that you wish you could get rid of or that you love and you're proud of things that i wish i could get rid of would be um i wish that i didn't care so much about what people thought about me in the moment even though I know it's a valuable skill in certain areas, but I just wish that when it came to just like basic interactions with coworkers or um, like friends of my father's that I'm seeing all the time, that I could just calm down and be myself a little bit more. I feel like I can be a little performative and I know I get that not from my um, mom so much as my as my dad who um, was an actor for like 20 plus years um, but I also think that it comes back to that idea of perfection mm -hmm. and that idea of making sure that I am the person that this person wants me to be and again that's a valuable skill in a lot of different ways it, but it can you know, I think to be, be aware of it is is valuable to yeah. be aware of what how, how other people perceive you but to be crushed by the slightest perceived yeah, mistake in uh, that is is a it's i know it it's, yeah exactly I live with it constantly the idea of like I, i've heard it in um like 12-step programs it's a good teacher but a bad master wow and that i've always stuck it. with me in the idea yeah. that you can't let those things rule your life yeah i um, used to um it didn't occur to me until i was probably in my 30s and i was I was either on the phone with my mom or I was getting ready to call her and she was always very interested in my life, but I would feel this, um, this dread and this heaviness being on the phone with her and, and it occurred to me one day how I always went over 
what it was I was going to say to her when she would ask me a question, like very quickly, um, what are the words I'm going to use? How am I going to express this thing? And I suddenly realized that that's really shitty, <laughs> that I don't feel safe just, just saying just what's saying. in your, and it's, yeah, in it's your brain. because everything was usually picked apart and judged, sometimes praised, um, sometimes um, you know criticized, but it was just, it was... I suddenly realized I feel like like she's one of those scanners at the checkout. They just everything has to pass through her it. inspection. Her inspection. Yeah. And it and it caused me anxiety and dread. Yeah, I mean, and, how could you look forward to a conversation like that? Yeah. I would have the opposite where I would have an entire conversation where I would be yelling and angry and screaming and say everything I wanted to say to her. And then I'd dial the mommy dearest phone number on my phone and go, hi, mom. (laughs) How are you? And inside I was just like this big knot of angry and you're such a bitch sometimes. And, And I would always just think to myself, the anger and the real feelings that I have are better if I just get them out before I talk to the actual person. <laughs> and uh, and did you I feel at the time that that those were valid, or do you think I'm just too sensitive? I'm a bad daughter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? I think I I wafted yeah between um, both of those extremes because it's funny. There's certain things that I think to myself. Any daughter would have done that for her mother. But my mother wasn't appreciative the way that other people's mothers probably were. Other kids would probably lug around a huge storage unit full of stuff for their parent if they loved if they loved their parent and I would guilt myself into it that way. And in in a certain way, that's a valid statement. But the problem is that with my mom, if you did that, then you needed to do it again. And then you needed to take her to seven different doctor's appointments in the course of three days. And if you didn't do that, then I, she just, it, who were you? I, was I still her daughter? How dare I say no to her? And, um, you know, it's that, that whole, if you give an inch, she's going to take a, a, you know, a mile. And, and the thing that I remember saying a lot to my therapist is that I feel like my mother is a black hole. And I could literally, I could just give her all my money. I could let her live with me. I could just, I could live out of my car as long as she was taken care of and it would never be enough and that's where the difference is i guess financially or emotionally or both both absolutely both because my mom was is not that way in the least financially Mm -hmm. she's a very generous person but you know also my dad set her up Mm -hmm. um uh to you know when he passed away she she lives fine she's you know she's okay which um Thankfully, I don't have that piece of of guilt. Um, but in terms of emotions, it would I would leave her apartment just completely depleted. I would have to sleep, and it it just felt like um, 
when I would be around her, she would become more and more energized and I would become more and more tired. And I would just feel like a husk by the, by the time I. So she was sucking the life out of you like, like the X-Men rogue or something. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I, and I know that she wanted to be closer to me, but as I've said many times, it it, it was, it's like she's a cactus that wants a hug. Mm. And it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. Um, what else would you like to share? I mean, I wrote I wrote some stuff down in terms of like moments okay. with my mom. Um, I think that it kind of goes back to what you're saying um, earlier about things that you wish were different about your personality or things that mm. you wish you weren't like is that um, when I was applying to colleges, I lied to my mom and I didn't apply to any local college, even though I told her that I did because, <laughs> because there was no way away. I was staying around Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and that it just seemed like, again, the smarter decision, if whatever I wanted to do or think or felt was going to, to um, be something she would disagree with, to just omit it or to just flat out lie. And I think that, Again, yes, that can sometimes be a handy skill to know when to just let someone believe what they want to believe. But in, in just in terms of, of interactions that I've had with other people or in difficult situations and in relationships, being like, well, you know, my husband or my boyfriend doesn't like this. Well, I'll just make sure that, that I do it when they're not around or I'll just not say anything about it. And that is basically a recipe for disaster in a relationship. And so um, that's something that has been like, that's one of my goals is to just get rid of that behavior and that uh, to always err on the side of honesty and communication, which, you know, has its own challenges in relationships. Oh my God, it's so anxiety inducing. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The lead up to a difficult conversation with somebody close to you is... I would almost rather be vomiting. Yeah. I I feel in just my yeah. my all of my guts just yeah. get like twisted up into a Gordian knot. It's awful. And that's you know, I'm I learned late in life that that's the basis for intimacy yeah. is having difficult conversations and communicating and not doing and doing it in a way that's diplomatic and loving without mm-hmm. really um minimizing what it is that you're feeling. Right. Yeah. So and hard. It's, it's like a lifetime's work. <laughs> I mean, it's basically a gigantic box of nuance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so hard. Yeah, and the box is like a cactus that so yeah. you pick it up, and yeah, it's just. It's a uh, what else? Um, what else? Um, I um, when I was sixteen, I um, got into a program to go uh, to England to study um, English and drama and being away from, again, being away from my family. And my mom um, was so, so incredible. And I would call and be so happy. And it would make my, I, I could just hear the sadness. And when I got back and I was trying to share pictures and share things about the trip, she was so furious that she hadn't found this for me and that she wasn't there to know what, where I had been or what I was doing. And it was really, I have to thank my dad for putting his foot down to get me to on that trip and give me, you know, just like a taste 
of, of freedom. Of freedom. And that's what I like when I when I got back from the trip and everybody asked how was it, the first thing in my mind to say was it felt I felt free. And I think that it's a very universal feeling. It's not specific to mental illness or or anything but being human to have that that yearning for freedom and that that's one of those tricky things about borderline I think and why it's so hard to diagnose is that I think so much of it is on the borderline of what's normal and I think that maybe that's what spoke to a lot of people when they read the essay is there's a lot of stuff I think that happens in this like very condensed setting of a borderline personality disorder parent and what a lot of people experience just in the nature of growing up. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, all, from my understanding, almost every disorder overlaps with some other disorder in some way. And Absolutely. so very often, um, from, from what I hear, uh, borderline uh, personality disorder and rapid cycling bipolar can be misdiagnosed for each other. But... You know, except I guess in terms of medicating somebody, although you really can't medicate a personality disorder, you can medicate mood disorders. Um, ultimately, I don't think it really matters what it's called as much as are you getting tools to to help deal with it? Are the people around you able to be honest with you about how they're experiencing you? And do you want to get better? You know, to me, those are the most important things. Right. And with borderline if someone says that you have a problem, then they're attacking you. Yeah. My mom went to so many therapists and she talked about how incredible they are and how this, you know, her husband, you know, needed to understand all the things that he needed to do. And, and then all of a sudden it'd be like, I'm not seeing that therapist anymore. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. And it was just, you know, they, they might've made a small cr- criticism of her and it was just boom, done that person's an idiot that person doesn't know what they're talking about and on to the next next a lot of therapists won't even work with people with a borderline personality disorder which yeah. is sad but understandable mm-hmm. understandable it's a very high maintenance um mental uh mental illness um although i don't know many mental illnesses <laughs> that aren't high maintenance um what else would you like to share um what do I got here? You know, I of course took ridiculous notes. Oh, I, this this was something that was, um, I guess, at a point in my life that where I really, um, where I where I, I feel like is the peak of the sadness of understanding my mom's disease was that when I was young, and I only lived with her half the time because of the um, custody agreement of my parents, that. Um, as I got to say like 11 or 12, like junior high to high school, my mom would come in at night and um, my stepdad had a job where he worked from um, like 3 a.m. to um, 2 p.m. kind of thing. And so he went to bed really early, um, which is another reason probably their marriage lasted a while is he was never around at night. And so she would come in late at night and I would always look forward to these 
mom conversations. And so instead of going to bed when I was supposed to, we would stay up for another hour or two hours and we would talk about life and all these different things that I probably had no fucking clue about because I was 12 and about relationships and about art and food. And I thought about how grown up it seemed to be my mom talking to me about this. And then, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years realizing that those conversations that I looked forward to were all just fueled by alcohol. Oh, really? And that my mom, she started drinking every day. Around. Were they inappropriate conversations? Or? I'd say some of them. I mean, I don't, I don't think that a 14-year-old needs to know that much about what their parents are doing in the bedroom, but it seemed like she was trusting me. And again, it's that thing where you you don't know the borders of you this stuff because you're, you're so flattered. young. You're yeah, flattered as exactly, a child. Exactly, that, that I'm cool enough that my mom would trust me with all this information. And I also felt like I was getting secret information and stuff that she wouldn't even share with her friends or her own husband. And um, yeah, to, to all of a sudden realize that, oh, it was really just that she, you know, she would get so, so amorous when she was really, really drunk and so chatty and that it was just all that coming out was so, that was where I just suddenly snapped. And, and that's when the anger started to take, kind of take over. And um, it was probably a good thing because I ended up standing up for myself and being able to make my own life but you know it was still really hard yeah what else um i feel really um i feel really good about some of the moments where i tried to stand up to my mom even though i was what i would say ultimately unsuccessful my mom chose to have a hysterectomy when I was in college and it was right, uh, it was right after I had had this conversation about saying like, I think that you need to stop drinking alcohol. And it was just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Alcohol is very important to me and I'm in the food industry and I am in the wine industry. So I have to drink alcohol. And I had wanted to go and spend, um, new years with some friends and, um, you know, there was a bunch of people around to help her. And the second I mentioned the idea of maybe leaving a little earlier to go spend time with my friends, I became the worst daughter in the history of daughters. And so, um, when she screamed and yelled at me, I decided to, my big, like, fuck you was to leave a hundred dollars on the doorstep and say, if you need some extra help, you should hire someone and leave. And I drove up to my boyfriend's house and didn't tell her. I just left like in the dead of night with a doll, you know, a hundred dollars mm-hmm. on the doorstep. And I thought, oh, this is, this is great. And in retrospect, I think, God, what a drama queen I was being. But I had, I, those were the tools that I was working with at the time because I didn't have any other tools that were given to me. And when I think of all of the different mistakes that I made in the process of trying to figure out how to deal with my mom, I feel like it was stumbling into the only way that I could figure out how to live with a mom like that. And I was just doing the best that I could. What are the tools that you developed and where did you learn them? I developed a lot of tools from my younger sister. She, um, she and I have a lot of similarities, but the way that we process challenging situations, she is, 
she 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 just doesn't fuck around you know she just says no this is how it's gonna be god i envy people i know it's just wonderful and um she she constantly inspires me to to not be judgmental on myself but to hold myself to higher standards if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. where um she wants me to do what's best for me, even when all these other forces are wanting me to kind of like please other people. And she knows what she wants and she goes after it. She, um, she wanted to go to an out of state school, even though she didn't have the money to pay for it. So she got all the scholarships she could and she went and I didn't even think it was a good idea to spend all that money on college, but she, she did it. And she always wanted to be a teacher and she's a teacher now. And she is so laser focused on everything that she Mm. wants to do. And I think that one of my challenges um, has always been like, Sarah, what do you want? As opposed to, well, this person thinks that what I want is this, or, well, Mm -hmm. my dad really wants this, or my mom really, really wants me to do this, or my friends think this would be good. And it's like, wait a second, like, what do I want to do? And so writing for me is a really good way to get at what I want. Like I, I write in a journal every night. Um, and I make to-do lists that are for like work and then also for myself. So that for me is really, really important. And I remember when I, um, stopped keeping a journal and how haphazard I would approach situations. Um, I make to-do list too, but then I use them as a pillow, which I think is very Aww, self-defeating. Oh, that's so romantic, yeah. though. It is, though. It is. <laughs> I kiss it right before there I lay my go. head on it. One, one day yeah. we'll be together, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been really, really helpful. And again, like, man, I don't know. Other people have, um, you know, like the idea, of the, like the word drug, like we all have our drug, that thing yeah. that, that we just crave. And, and I feel like there are really good ones and really bad ones for me. You know, exercise is absolutely something that is a drug and keeps me like it's the best medication that someone could prescribe for me. Right. So because it's not compulsive and it's, and right. it's not coming I from love a place it. of it feels good. I it have to healthier. look a certain way. No, it's, this is like health. Yeah. Um, and so I, I absolutely can tell when things are getting a little wonky in my life if I'm not focusing on um, if I'm not focusing on and exercising, if I'm not writing, if I'm not doing the things that are really important for me. And this is also this is kind of a weird one, but what's really important for me as a tool is my relationship with alcohol, which for me it's like. Um, it's almost like Iocane powder in the princess bride. Like I want to master it Mm -hmm. and have just the right amount. So it never is, um, something that can ruin me. Like, you you know, some people would be like, I'm just never going to touch it because there's an alcoholic that's, you know, in the direct line and I don't want it. I don't want it to affect me in that same way. I'm the opposite. I'm like, you know what, alcohol, fuck you, I can have exactly the amount that I want and keep it in moderation. And I always make sure that I kind of keep alcohol. Like I actually make a conscious effort to make sure that I drink at least five times a week in moderation, give or take, Mm -hmm. to make sure that I won't get too weird if I have too much to drink. Like I want to master it as opposed Mm -hmm. to... Is the urge there to drink more? Mm, Not really. 
You know, I've always, for some weird, I, again, I feel so lucky. Do you, do you feel like it's your way of saying I'm not my mom? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's my way of saying this doesn't have power over me the way that it had power over her. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, do you want to do some fears and loves? Absolutely. Um, Why don't you start off with, uh, fun. with I, some fears? All right. I love talking it, about what I'm afraid of. And if, and if <laughs> I think of any, I'll uh, I'll jump in. Um. So, a fear I have is that... Scoot into the microphone, oh, actually. Yeah. There, there we go. go. So, I'm, I'm really... I fear that my dad will die feeling like he was a bad father because of the person he chose to be my mother. And that he will feel like he didn't do enough for me which is the exact opposite. You know, like he has done so much. He has been the most important person in my life. And he all, he, he struggles like, you know, some, some actors do with (laughs) self-worth and so some, some. and so the idea I, I try and, and let him know how wonderful he is because I just don't feel like he ever really gets it. And no matter how much I say it or his friends say it, um, I feel like sometimes I, I, I fear that there's like, I'm no matter what I do, the running or the, um, the average moderate, moderate intake of alcohol or all the things I do to take care of myself, that none of it's going to matter. And that there's some sort of like the way that Russian spies are activated by some trigger that all of a sudden at 37, something's going to happen and I'll go off the rails and I will be like my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a terrible fear that I'd have to keep in check. Um, and my therapist is really good at helping me keep that one in check. Um, I fear, I fear a lot that I missed a juncture where I had a chance for a certain type of happiness Um, and I think that one of the challenges of, um, of my life is that in certain areas, the trajectory of my life has mirrored the trajectory of my mom's life, like getting divorced. And so I think to myself like, Oh God, is this the moment or, Oh God, is this the trigger? And I fear that, you know, maybe if I, maybe if I say stayed married, that, everything would have been okay and that I've like missed my shot. I relate to that one uh, very much in terms of feeling like um, did some opportunity for financial security pass my way (laughs) and I couldn't see the red flashing lights that was like, Hey, this is your, this is your chance Mm -hmm. to, and, uh, and because I'm so dumb or so lazy that now I'll be working the rest of my life. Right. And I mean, I, again, I, I wonder if that's something that's specific to our, you know, a, a mom with BPD, which I know is mm. something that we share, or if that's something that has to do with a career in like the arts a little bit. Like, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess it's all just mixed together. Yeah. Um, another fear. I fear that, 
I fear that I'm only going to understand what I have when it's gone. <laughs> Sometimes that does yeah, happen. Yeah, I fear that. Um, I I fear that people, even though even though all evidence is to the contrary, I fear that there's some specific thing about me that's awful. Like something that no one wants to that's tell me. one of the most common fears that people... Is I've it? I've interviewed hundreds of people on this show. That's and funny. And it is probably the number one thing is that I'm unaware of this thing that this is thing. repelling And that people. no one is kind enough to tell me. Right. Like I think when someone... When like someone my personality walks, has bad breath. Yes, exactly. And nobody has the and balls no to give me a And no one has the balls to tell me. Like someone wearing a terrible outfit who walks down the, th- the street, I think like, does that person not live with someone? Or, a bad or have toupee. friends? Yeah, like someone say something. Um, well, like, I'm not alone. No, <laughs> I guess that's the, the whole point of the it. show. I'm far not alone. <laughs> um, and I fear this is this is definitely from my mom. I fear um, that I'm going to be resentful. I fear that when I don't that that I'll find something that's great, and then I'll find the thing that's slightly not great about that great thing, and I'll resent it. Um, because that's exactly what she did. She had so many opportunities to 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 grow and to uh, heal herself, and she would always find that one thing that wasn't perfectly convenient for that situation. Like she moved in with my grandmother at one point, and she was li- living for free. She didn't have to worry about money anymore. But then it was just all those like, oh well, you know, this is a, the the staircase is annoying, or <laughs> I can't water when. I, I, at the hour that I like to water my tomatoes. I mean, it was just all those little things that she would always find a way to make that solution not work. What kind of um, trauma or abandonment do you think your mother experienced as a kid? My mom stopped speaking to her dad very early in life. Um, and so I kind of think that there might have been some kind of sexual trauma, but I, I, my mom refused to let me meet my grandfather. I never met him. I think that the crux of what I needed to get out when I wrote the piece that I did was the idea that the that that parenting skill that I have, um, even though I had to develop it out of a lot of negative things or people would say negative um, experiences, there have been such valuable tools in other areas, and you have the tools that you get and. It's up to you to use those tools in a positive way. Like you can use them in a negative way. So that's that's my that's my goal is to find a way to take those skills that were from these like really, you know, challenging situations in an otherwise. I mean, I also want to add, like, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. I mean, like I had as much as all this is challenging, like when I look back on my childhood, writing down like memories and things like I had a really great childhood and I lived in a, you know, I lived in a loving environment. It might've been way too loving at points with Mm -hmm. the way that my mom could be suffocating. Um, But I feel like I feel really grateful and I feel like a lot of, what I've gone through was just kind of part of what I got. And I could choose to look back at it and be resentful. 
or I can choose to think about it as, well, you know, it was pretty fucked up, but you know, yeah. I, I don't have to be fucked up because of it. Like yeah. those fucked up things can happen to me without me having to, you know, like be the, the vessel for all I, that. I like to think of them as forced gym memberships. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're glad that you built up some muscles. Right. Um, you wouldn't choose it uh, but again. That's but that's just, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's just what you get. Let's, let's do some loves. Okay. Um, things that, things that I really love. Um, I really, really love being alone in airports because I can just watch people without anybody questioning it or it seeming weird that I'm staring people down and watching their idiosyncrasies. And um, I love being um, the, the fly on the wall, which is, you know, it's a very writerly thing to do, really. Um, so I love that. And um, I used to travel a lot for my job. Now I travel a lot less for my job, but I, I travel a lot because um, I want to travel. And so um, that's a big love um, because I run. Um, I love, love, love coming back from a long run um, and your skin has uh, become kind of salty from the sweat, from the mm -hmm. evaporating, then feeling that texture on your skin. It's almost tighter. The shower, yeah. yeah. And I lie down in the shower. And I um, I challenge anybody listening to this to invent like a waterproof inflatable mattress for your shower so that the water can drain through it that I can put mm. down so I can lie down. Where do you let the water down. hit? Where does it hit you, the water? I mean, it's kind of like my stomach, mm -hmm. but I also can, uh, you know, I can, I can crouch for a second and then I can be on mm. one side. But sometimes, you know, I just like let it fall where it may or I can change the shower head but I just love that sensation after a lot of exercise I like to cry in the shower and pretend I'm in a lifetime movie <laughs> it's cathartic yes. I would think uh, here's a love I uh, just thought of that the smell that a lawnmower imparts to a closed garage where it's uh -huh. a little bit of gasoline and it's also freshly cut grass. It's kind of this weird mixture. I just remember it from childhood and I always loved that. That kind that, of that, that blended. That, that weird blend. That's kind of a great, yeah, like um, that makes me think of making potions as a kid, which is something mm. that I love to do. Like the, the idea of like smelling something and like mixing it in like a Dixie cup and just like seeing yeah. what weird thing you come up with. Um, is it my turn or is yep, it your turn? Your turn. Okay. Um, something that I love is I have a paperweight that my mom made for me from when, um, I, um, hurt my leg very seriously, um, playing soccer when I was younger and I had to have a screw inserted into my leg. And then once the bone had healed, they did a cosmetic procedure to make the scar that was really big smaller, and they took the screw out. And unbeknownst to me, my mother got went to the surgeon, got the screw, got it cleaned, and got it encased in plasticine. Wow. And I have that. And it's so weird. And people look at it and go, that's really weird. And I say, I know. And I just love that it's this thing that kept my knee together that totally my mom I just love it I totally I love get it so it. much I still have hardware in my in my left yeah, ankle I still I, I can feel the, the head of the screws oh that's I, cool yeah, yeah does yeah. it hurt when it rains a little bit no no it doesn't okay, but that I sometimes did happens. I did have to have one of the screws uh taken out uh, I don't mm. know why the doctor said let's just leave the the plate and the screws in there but mm -hmm. um 
one was starting to rub on my, uh, I play hockey, and one of them was starting right. to rub on the inside of my skate and was oh, uh, getting big, so that they just took did a out. little procedure and took one out, but um, I just kind of like that I have You hard, could make an earring hardware. out of it or something. Yeah, have hardware in my body, but <laughs> I used to love uh, like when a tooth would fall out when you uh-huh. were a kid, just looking at it and smelling yeah, it. Yeah, it's just yeah. so weird, and you're like, I made this, but you yes. didn't make it, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, Give me another one. Um, I... Absolutely love rainbow sprinkles on frozen yogurt. Yeah, yeah, like just the that like kind of the good sprinkles, the fresh sprinkles, mm-hmm. that waxy consistency. And I don't do like just a little bit of sprinkles. Like I get the the side of rainbow sprinkles, and then I take a scoop of the frozen yogurt and submerge it in the sprinkles. Mm. So it's like real sprinkle heavy. The ratio is very like one to one froyo to sprinkle. That's like, that's really awesome. Um, I, uh, I love, I love a hot fudge sundae that has almost too much hot fudge mm. where where it's ridiculous but you get a lot of hot fudge hot in every fudge. bite oh that's so delicious yeah. dairy so, queen's hot fudge uh is is it the best just, to me it is it's i just love the best. you it, know like the the houston's chain like in, mm-hmm. in la yeah. their hot fudge sunday is, is serious yeah it's like deadly but uh, the the last one I have written down here is that one of my one of my favorite things is to watch a movie that I love with a person who is watching it for the first time. Oh, what a great! That is one. that is one of my favorites. Especially things. when they like it, and you see you see their happiness, or that they're waiting for the joke, or for the person yes. to surprise like that, like vicariously to experience it for the first time. What a great, what a great one, I and a great that. one to uh, to end on. If people want to get a hold of you, um, what is your Twitter handle? Um, um, it's Smarty Pants underscore Inc. I N C. Smarty Pants Inc. is my Twitter handle. And if people want to uh, know more about you or contact you or anything, where where should they go? Just through they can Twitter? go through uh, Twitter or um, through LinkedIn. Okay. I have a profile there. So yeah. Okay, Sarah. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you. It's really been great. It's so nice talking to her and. and- Getting her to share that article uh, with you guys is, uh, I was so happy that uh, she was willing to to read, come on the podcast and and read that. Um, Before I read some surveys, I want to give some love to uh, Blue Apron, who has been uh, sponsoring us lately. And uh, they've been uh, sending me meals and I have been loving the shit out of them. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Blue Apron, uh, for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make kick-ass home-cooked meals. Uh, they know that when you cook with good ingredients, you make good meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. And whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. Now, I've raved about the stuff that I've made, um, and they gave me some free meals to send to friends so they could try it. And so I sent them an email after they tried it and said, so what do you guys think? And here are some of the comments I got back. Uh, I fucking love it. Paying now and happy to. Learning how to cook and eating better. Uh, wines are great. 
Um, saving me time on the weekends because I don't have to go big grocery shopping. Uh, I like that I can choose the menus from the website. The variety of menus is great so far. The recipes have all turned out really great, better than most of the recipes in the cookbooks and websites that I regularly refer to. Uh, the recipe cards are beautifully designed and very easy to follow. The upfront prep instructions are great. The large format size of the recipe cards with only one card per recipe is perfect. Uh, and finally, it's been a highlight of my summer. Uh, and I got to agree with uh, with all of those things. So uh, check it out. Um, go to uh, blueapron.com and... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, blueapron.com slash mental... And check out this week's menu. Uh, here are some of the things available in August. Spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad. Summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers, and corn. Uh, and chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. So uh, check those out. You get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let's get to some surveys. Um, actually, I want to start off with a couple of emails. Some really good emails this uh, this week. This is one I got from uh, AJ. And... They write, I can't remember if Alex is a, is a man or a woman, uh, but uh, I have a question about you and Adderall. Did you ever use them recreationally back when you were using uh, slash boozing? What is your unprofessional opinion on someone who suffers from depression and uses amphetamines recreationally to genuinely get work done, do projects, enjoy life? Does this mean this person should seek a prescription even if they don't have ADHD? Also, are you experiencing any harsh comedowns in the afternoon or evening? And I wrote back that amphetamines were not a recreational thing for me. Uh, while I did use them a half a dozen times in college as a study aid, and they worked very well, I think uh, if speed had been a thing for me, I would not have tried uh, Adderall for, for my depression. And I tried it more for uh, the treatment-resistant depression than, than the ADHD. Um, I also said, I think the question people should ask themselves if they're considering using it is, why would I be taking it? Uh, can I be honest with myself if it feels addicting? Uh, do I have an addictive past with substance, substances, uh, especially amphetamines? And what does my psychiatrist think? Um, I would have never tried it had my psychiatrist not recommended it. Um, and I think uh, I was honest with myself about whether or not I uh, want to take more after I started taking it. And thankfully, the answer was no, I don't. Um, I could be on a higher dose than I am. And I I don't have any desire to be. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the question about whether or not something is, is addicting is a personal one to each person. But here's some things to certainly consider is, does this thing interfere with parts of my life using this substance? Do I feel a loss of control, you know, broken promises about using it? Um, those are some things to, to consider. So, you know, I don't feel comfortable telling any one person what they should or shouldn't put in their body. Um, other than my penis, and I'm always a thumb up on that one. I couldn't. How could I resist? How could I resist that opening? 
This is a uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by Merg. And she writes, um, she actually asks a question. She's, she describes a scenario where she's struggling uh, in an unhealthy relationship with a, with a boyfriend. And there's a lot of guilting going on back and forth uh, between them. And she writes, how can one ask for help without it sounding like an emotionally blackmailing and or self-harming threat? And I don't know if I know the perfect answer to that, but I know one of the answers is don't try to get help through that person that you have a super complicated emotional, you know, emotionally manipulative relationship with. So, um yeah, that's my two cents is find independent help and don't look to anybody else to validate whether or not it's okay for you to seek help. Do you want to get better? Then fucking go do it. Now that was that was me giving giving you some tough love. Uh Seth writes, um just listening to the most recent episode, you read an email from someone who was talking about sexual arousal during breastfeeding and how it's a common thing. While I am a man and have never, will never have any personal experience with this, um, uh, I've read about it before and it has actually been fairly well studied. It is well known that there is a link between sexual arousal and breastfeeding and a couple hypotheses have been proposed as to why it happens. They generally boil down to the fact that breastfeeding can be painful and tiring. The release of pleasure chemicals in the brain is a way to offset that and create a stronger bond between mother and child. It just so happens that the body uses the same chemicals as it does when a woman is sexually aroused or bonding with a romantic partner. Uh, again, I can't emphasize enough that I am a man with absolutely no experience with this. I'm just repeating empirical scientific research that I've read. So apologies if I'm, quote, mansplaining something I can never understand uh, to women. But the main point I'm trying to make is that there is a scientific explanation, and it is absolutely normal. Some surveys found that as many as 50% of women experienced sexual arousal during breastfeeding, and almost 10% reported orgasming while, while breastfeeding. Um, a good Google search of sexual arousal breastfeeding will come up with lots of insightful results. No one should feel weird about this. It is objectively and scientifically normal. Um, and I'm sure you'll get some really interesting things too when you Google sexual arousal breastfeeding. I'm sure no commercial sites will, uh, will come up. Um, thank you for that, AJ. This is just a portion of a survey I wanted to read. It's from a struggle in a sentence survey, and it was filled out by a woman who calls herself the awkward friend. And I just thought this was so beautiful. Um, she writes uh, about the question, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? And she writes, I was really nervous uh, about talking to my general practitioner about my skin picking since it seems to be not very well understood. I was afraid that she would react like everyone else and just tell me to do something else with my hands. Oh, okay, I'll just stand in front of the mirror and go jazz hands. She did not react that way at all. In fact, she told me she was proud of me for coming in and prescribed me medication that she thought would help. She's going to check back with me in a week or so to see how I'm doing. I also told my therapist about it later that same day and she, too, was more than supportive and encouraging. If you suffer from skin picking, don't be afraid to talk to someone. You are not alone with this disorder. Amen. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Uh, this is from The Struggle in a Sentence. And 
A woman who calls herself Free the Butthole. To those of our listeners that are new, uh, there's a running theme here. Uh, one night I was trying to hit the three-hour mark uh, on the podcast, and uh, I had about four minutes left, and I didn't know what to talk about because I wanted to fill the time uh, just to hit the three-hour mark for the hell of it. And um, and I just started riffing uh, about my dog Herbert's butthole, and uh, it's since kind of become a thing and we're actually working on uh herbert t-shirts so i'll I'll let you know when those are are available anyway uh this woman calls herself free the butthole and about her love addiction she writes it's nearly our two-year anniversary of course you don't know it if i told you how i really feel you'd finally reject me and i'd lose the source of my most distracting romantic fantasies god that is so so dead on about being a sex crime victim. I've never, it's never valid enough to call a cop, but it's always valid enough to make me feel like shit. You'd think a feminist like me would have reacted better, but instead I just blame myself. To which, first of all, I want to say, um, but you know it. it, it wasn't your fault. But don't beat yourself up for not being able to stop that feeling in yourself that why am I beating myself up? Because there are two separate things, I think. One is an intellectual acknowledgement that you did nothing wrong. But the second one, I think, is like this genetic emotional thing that happens to trauma survivors where we need to feel some sense of control in the world so it's easier to blame ourselves in some way than to realize that, oh my God, that random thing can happen to someone. Uh about her experiencing sexual bias. She writes, Step one, feel moved to become a Jesuit priest. Start to sign up for an online program to get there. Then remember that you were born with a vagina and can't join. Step two, remember that the vast majority of our religious leaders, political leaders, business leaders, and social leaders have dicks. Step three, sob like an idiot in public, but don't say why you're upset because that's crazy feminazi shit to care. Um... Yeah, I'm I um I think talk about it and fuck anybody that uh wants to lump you into that stereotype. I mean, that's fucking shitty. It's it's a big reason why I hate 90% of uh, organized religion. Um but I'm not an an atheist. I believe in I believe in a higher power. Um Anyway, snapshot from her life. I tell my friends about my, dare I say it, sexual assaults, but twist it in a way that makes it sound like I'm bragging. Bragging about having older men leer and whisper and swipe at me. About older men luring me into closed-off rooms and spaces to violate me. My friends congratulate me and say they wish they had someone older and richer who would give them more attention. Uh, I'm going to mention a resource that I mention all the time. But it's a great place if you have not begun to heal from sexual trauma. And it's uh, rain.org. And that's R-A-I-N-N, the Rape and, Inc- Rape and Incest National Network. Um, go there. Go there. Go there. Go there. Do not try to heal from sexual trauma by yourself. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans male who calls himself Slug Boy. He is bisexual in his 20s, 
raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it, uh, has been emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts, every night for six months, I've fantasized about being kidnapped. Uh, when I'm when I'm under the stifling covers, I pretend I'm locked in someone's trunk with my hands and feet bound. I think being murdered by a serial killer would be nice, at least when they're caught and my body is discovered my name will live on in some shitty true crime novel but then again i fantasize about the same scenario but one where i'm the one who got away where i kill the killer i don't know which would be better darkest secrets i think my family had some weird boundary issues i have a lot of memories of lying in my dad's lap as a small child maybe three or four and feeling things through his pants and he wouldn't stop me I'd lick his face like a dog, and he wouldn't stop me. They had me dressed for school in the living room until sixth grade, for fuck's sake. That's fucking weird. I don't have any memory of sexual abuse directly in the house, but fuck, that is so weird. That's weird. That's disgusting. Um, yeah, I don't. I, that's inappropriate. That's abusive. Um, not giving a child that wants boundaries around their body is abuse. That's that's a form of sexual abuse. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Brainwashing, mind control, demonic possession, Stockholm Syndrome, anything where I have no control over my own body and brain. I want someone else to give me all the answers and turn my no into a yes. It makes me so sick. I don't really want to be put through that again. Um, and that's what we fucking do with our sexual fantasies. Well, those of us who are survivors, um, so many of us fold it into our fantasy because we want to go back in a time machine and take control of it. What, do you, what if anything do you wish for? I'd eat my hands to hear my rapist grovel for my forgiveness, but then I wouldn't be able to strangle him for it. Maybe I can trade a kidney instead. Uh, have you shared these things with others? My therapist hears all my shit. Bless him. Um... Any comments to make the podcast better? Replace all the surveys with butthole jokes. Also, unfrosted Pop-Tarts are the devil. Uh, the first half of that, I'm in. You not liking unfrosted Pop-Tarts, I cast you to hell. And I don't mean the mezzanine of hell. I'm talking the boiler room of hell. I do not trust anybody that doesn't like pie or unfrosted Pop-Tarts. Not only do I not trust you, but I'm seriously considering hiring a team of pastry vigilantes to hunt you down and get you to taste a blueberry unfrosted Pop-Tart. And if you still dislike it, we'll leave you alone. But I cannot live knowing that you have reached this very important decision without all the facts. This is an email I got from Megan, and she writes, um, I just wanted to say thank you for the show. I've struggled with mental health issues my entire life. Had a bad childhood, this whole stereo, stereotypical rundown, you know. I tried for years to get help, but I had uh, a series of doctors and therapists I hated and had lost all hope of ever finding someone who would help me. Hearing stories of other people's failures... Uh, I assume she means to find uh, 
somebody who's good, has encouraged me to live through mine and keep trying. This year, I decided to get help again. I had one really shitty doctor, and in my head, I could hear you talking about how hard the good ones can be to find. That shitty doctor told me that this, that that his time was too valuable and I should leave because I asked him about one of my medicines giving me headaches. I usually would have shut down, stopped taking meds, said that I tried and never gotten help again. But you know what I did? I found a different doctor, only because I have your voice in my head, and she is the kindest person I've ever met. She said, you're going to get better, maybe not right away. The first goal should be one good day or one good hour, and then we'll go from there together. Paul, after that appointment, I sat in my car and cried for about an hour. To have someone so nice, gentle, and understanding after years of feeling berated was like a drink of water. I got a little choked up. I just, I live for reading emails like that. This is an awful moment for those of you that are new to the podcast. Uh, it's a word we came up with to describe something from the past that had something really horrible in it, but also something that was kind of good or funny. Uh, you know, combination of awesome and awful, hence awfulsome. This was filled out by Pocahontas's friend was totes a lesbian, and she writes uh, to to try and groom 17-year-old me on an online forum and eventually request that I join his BDSM ring, and an anonymous middle-aged man acted as my pseudo-counselor. Despite the occasional requests, the occasional questions about my kink preferences, he was more effective than years of paid therapy. Within a few days, I had a huge epiphany about why I seek out unhealthy relationships. It still took me a bit before I stopped contact with him, but since then, he has been the last person I've allowed to use me sexually. It's fucking crazy where the best lessons in life can come from. Um... You know, it's a cliche, but it's true. But failure can be uh, the best teacher. And right now I'm hating myself for saying that. Um, I should have really stopped and put on a tweed jacket with elbow patches and uh, taken a puff of a pipe, right as I said it. Isogenesis uh, writes about his anxiety. Like I'm pressing the gas and brake pedals to the metal at once and going nowhere as the engine screams about his codependency. It's my fault that I care too much and my fault that you don't care enough. Wow. Poetic. Poetic. Thank you for that. This is uh, a shame and secret survey from Scottish Island Lass. And she is in her 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my father subjected me to, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned before on the podcast this weird uh, dynamic in when I put the surveys together um, that they come in, in clumps of of themes. And and tonight I think there is definitely a, a theme. Uh, 
My father subjected me to visual sexual abuse from my earliest memories till I was 15 years old. He would walk around our home naked, holding his genitals, uh, wearing no underwear, and expose and touch himself whilst he whilst we watched TV like it was normal. He would dress with his penis exposed through his zipper most of the time at home. He would urinate in the bathroom sink with the door ajar and the light off so we would walk in on him then he'd get angry. He would sunbathe naked outside our house and the neighbors saw this. Many, many other odd and bizarre things. Um, ever been emotionally or physically abused? Uh, I just don't know what kind of abuse this is as I've researched and never found any information about this happening to anyone else. I'm 42 now and still so very confused and frustrated. I really wish I could find other people who have been through the same thing. If you are talking about uh, a parent uh, who um, used uh, uh, visually was sexually abusive, there are tons. So email me and I can put you in contact with some of the people I know uh, who experienced that. Um, and it is a fucking real thing. And you, while I understand that you're confused and frustrated, just know that you are not alone and this is a real thing. And it happens a lot to a lot of people. And it's really fucked up because the survivors, um, the first thing they will do is say, but mine wasn't as bad as the person who was actually touched. But the message to both the child who has really overt physical sexual abuse and what happened to you, the message is the, is the same to that child, which is that you don't matter. And that's that, to me, is where the hurt comes from. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? I'm not really in touch with him very often anymore, but I feel sorry for him, which is annoying. I think it's beautiful that you feel sorry for him because um, I don't feel sorry for his actions, I feel sorry that he's so sick and he's either too afraid to get help or too ignorant to get help. Um, darkest thoughts. I think a lot about death. It scares me. I don't think I've ever met somebody who experienced incest who doesn't think about death a lot. Darkest Secrets, I was a very promiscuous teenager and put myself in bad situations with men taking advantage of me, which again is textbook for somebody who experienced childhood sexual abuse. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. People watching, yuck, and sometimes sex makes my skin crawl. Again, textbook. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I've said everything I can to my father, but he doesn't really get it. Just pretends he does. There's no point anymore. That, I'm so sorry that that is the response that you've gotten. But sadly, that is the response of most of the parents that do that, that have been confronted. Uh what if anything you wish for? I wish he would die now as I can't take the stress anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this survey is because I wanted to say to you, let let him die. Let your relationship die. And it sounds like you're on your way to doing that, but um, you, you don't ever have to see him again. And 
any comments to make the podcast better, find someone who's had this same weird shit happen or get me on the show. And I'm not joking. I would get myself to you to talk about this crap. Um, I've listened to every single episode. Uh, I've been waiting my whole life for it. It's groundbreaking. That's so nice. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, you are so not alone in that. I've read so many of these surveys. And you would be shocked at how many of the people that do that are mothers uh, that use the nudity um, to, to abuse. And in their, in their mind, I think a lot of them don't even think it's abusive because maybe it was done to them. I don't know. But uh, maybe Megan writes about her depression. Uh, when staring at a plain white ceiling all day and night is easier than seeing your best friend smile. Wow. Wow, do you just fucking nail that? I have stared at so many light bulbs in my life. I remember as a kid at like 10 years old wondering why it's nice outside. Why am I laying on my bed staring at the ceiling and the light fixture unable to move? Tina Fey makes my pants fit funny, writes about his depression. Is it too much to ask that the super volcano under Colorado explodes soon, or the planet smashing asteroid, or the zombie apocalypse? Can I just get something that will thoroughly disrupt civilization as we know it so I can breathe again? That would be the nice thing about uh, people who have anxiety, is a zombie apocalypse would finally prove that they're right. They'd see a horde of zombies coming and go, I knew it! (laughs) Run! Run! No! No! I fucking knew it! I want to shake their hands. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by someone right around the corner from uh, uh, Scottish Lass. Uh, Irish and wish I could drink like one. Uh, she is straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. She writes, I would love your advice on this matter. Uh, if I'm going completely fucking insane and if it's just over exaggeration when my sister was born, my mom would stay with her in the other room. I was four and I would go into my dad. Uh, in the middle of the night. This was every night for a good few years. I was never sexually abused, but there was an inappropriate atmosphere, which I don't think was intentional by my father. He would spoon with me really tightly in the bed, and I didn't feel comfortable with saying stop. He would run his fingers up and down my arms and thighs and have his body pressed against mine. Uh, If I felt uh, it was wrong at the time, but repressed it for many years, he would take baths with me. I just wanted him to be happy and please him back. Um, it sounds, the three things right away out of the gate, our bodies rarely lie to us. Uh, things that we sense, uh, especially as kids, before you know that, uh, that adolescent or adult thing of uh, telling you the opposite so that you can get out of bed. Um, uh, the... It just sounds it sounds really creepy. Uh, I don't know how long the baths uh, lasted, 
and if there's a, a year and age that they should stop taking place. Um, but I think generally, if you can remember um, your dad naked in the bathtub with you, that's fucked up. So, um, she writes, I let this happen though, and I don't even know if it counts as anything wrong or sinister. Um, you were a child. A child can't let, quote, let something happen that is being done by an adult who knows more than them and is being manipulative. They're no match for a manipulative, sick adult mind. Um, all the attention stopped once I hit puberty. The obscene comments stopped and the behavior. You didn't mention what the obscene comments were, but any obscene comment um, is a form of sexual abuse. Anyway, continuing, his alcoholism was more prominent when I was a kid, uh, unaware to me at the time and only verified by my mother in later years. So I can never tell if I was always in the wrong. I'm a sensitive person and my perception could be skewed, but what I am describing did happen. My first intimate encounter was just kissing and I had a panic attack. Being with someone makes me feel gross and dirty like it's not natural, yet I still have sexual desires but desperately don't want to be hurt. And I'm a virgin for God's sake. I'd love a man to be kind to me, but I've only been taught men are emotionless animals who only want one thing. I think a lot of this comes back to my dad. That all, you know, that all seems to fit together for me. Um, but I would definitely go talk to somebody um, about this. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused, especially, you know, when you factor this in, what I'm about to read. I would be hit by my dad because he was stronger than my mom. The slaps would knock me into the next month. They were so hard. Um, been beaten with a stick for wandering off one time uh, as a kid. That haunts my memory. My sister was holding a doll alongside my dad and skipping up the road while my arse was beaten red and raw, reminding me of how much a fucked up kid I was. He would often dangle me from the top of the stairs thinking it was fun. I'm still afraid of heights from that. Um, there's so much more stuff by my dad, but I'd be typing all day. Um, and her mom sounds like she was really controlling too. Um, this is really important paragraph coming up any positive experiences with the abusers yes i still love both my parents dearly out of all the bad i would say most of my life they have done, done nothing but good for me feeding me taking me places i was brought up in the age of the celtic tiger or celtic tiger in ireland where money was affluent and financial woes were never a concern i had all the toys i wanted with my sister who is very close in age to me. I idolize my parents in a way. Uh, they are what I set my parameters to as I have shut off everyone else in my life, but they are so destructive at the same time. It would kill me if they weren't in my life and died. I've had this fear of my father dying since I was eight. He is still alive to no avail. 
Uh, I'm kidding, but especially my mother. She can be so nice to me after berating me that I immediately forgive her. I do not like to harbor guilt or hurtful feelings towards others. We spend so much time with one another. Although I want to break away from her, I feel I'm not strong enough. Don't have a job and still living at home and too anxious to do anything about it. Nothing that you mentioned is emotionally nurturing that you're apologizing uh, to your child after berating them while nice is is not emotional nourishment. You know, there needs to be nourishment um, uh, in areas other than an apology. And the things that you mentioned that they, they fed you, they took you places. Yeah, that's the bottom line of what a parent is supposed to do. That's the absolute minimum um toys yeah that's um you haven't mentioned a single thing that they gave to you emotionally emotional moments and i don't want to sound like a uh a communist but capitalist culture has equated things with love and it's why so many of us are so confused. It's why I was so confused for so many years about the abuse that I experienced because I did get nice things and my college was paid for and I had a, got a car when I graduated college and, and on and on and on. But it was absolute emotional poverty that, that I grew up in. And, and that's not to say that there weren't ever nice moments with my family. Um, but listen to your body. Listen to what your body tells you when you're around your family. It is telling you what the truth is. And it sounds to me like it's telling you, run, run. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to say that because I think mistaking financial wealth for emotional wealth is killing the planet. Especially in Western culture. Um, Andrea in Colorado, who uh, I think we read one of her things before. I think she wrote the thing about the breastfeeding, the arousal during breastfeeding, and we read it on last, uh, last week's episode. Anyway, she writes... Uh, I thought uh, I'd share a great, awfulsome moment. Um, she had a friend who uh, was murdered and who's, it made national news and they were searching in the desert in 100 plus temperatures for her. And um, she was searching, I'm just giving you a little preface, uh, with her friend named Ken who was out there uh, searching in the heat with a artificial leg and uh, she writes we've been searching for several days in the heat arms length apart in a line combing one square quarter mile at a time looking for evidence or remains of any kind if we saw anything we had to yell hold the line Um, I I, uh, we are trudging along and Kent my friend yells hold the line so the crew hollers uh, you got something? To which Kent casually replied, Nope, my leg just fell off. We all laughed our asses off. 
You can find good in anything, I swear. Thank you for that. I'm having a little trouble reading tonight. I've been my brain's been a little scattered. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, I am in hell. And he writes about his codependency. Please just sit with me and stare at the TV forever. Be alone with me so I'm not alone in my loneliness. Thank you for that. This is, oh, and they, he uh, has anxiety that he submitted a survey uh, and then heard someone else's survey that sounded similar uh, and he was afraid I was going to accuse him of copying that person's uh, survey. And just do not beat yourself up about that. Know that 99% of the time, I'm just too busy thinking about myself. This is filled out by Emma. It's a shame and secret survey. She's gay in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it been physically and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, I've been abused a lot throughout childhood, and when your abusers are your family, it's really hard to not feel love for them because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, But that doesn't sound like there's any positive experiences. It sounds like you just um, went along with the the brainwashing that uh, we seem to have. Uh, What are your... Deepest, darkest thoughts, being raped. Part of me almost wants to be because that's what I'm meant to do. That's what I was taught. So I'm just waiting to be raped because it's been so long since I've been sexually abused. Darkest secrets. When I was young, like really young, I would do sexual things but didn't know they were. So I feel like I gave permission for other people to do things to me. I never hurt anyone sexually. When I say I would do sexual things, it was only to myself. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I usually am repulsed by sex or, or extremely hypersexual. Again, that is textbook, um, for people who've been sexually abused. The fantasies are more of what I, th- I think I deserve, uh, to be punished than what I actually want. It's very hard for me to separate what I actually want and what I think I deserve. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to ask my sibling if my mother did things to him. Um, I wonder if she's saying that her mother was the one that did things to her. Um, because I do know of, of a, um, a group uh, of people who have connected over that subject. And uh, I'm one of the people. And we found a lot of comfort in sharing our stories with each other so um, contact me if you're one of those one of those people or anybody else uh, who is listening uh, what do you if anything you wish for I'm not sure if you shared these things with others yes some of them how do you feel after writing these things down I'm not sure anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences it's not your fault being sexually abused or abused in any way uh, in any way really fucks you up mentally, but it's not your fault for being confused and not knowing what you want. Isn't that funny how we can know intellectually, but can't feel it emotionally? It's unbelievable. Sending you some love. 
Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by River Girl, and she writes, Recently I drove by a building in my hometown that used to be a movie theater, and I had a flashback to myself at 17 watching a movie there alone. At the time, I'd been in uh, a, quote, relationship with a man in his 20s uh, since I was 13 years old. I remember feeling uncomfortable about about one of the relationships in the movie. The movie? Manhattan. The relationship? 40-something-year-old Woody Allen and 17-year-old Mariel Hemingway. Um, the discomfort? Not the fact that their characters were having a relationship, but the longing I had to be as beautiful as Mariel so that my, quote, Woody would love me and actually want to have a relationship with me and not just treat me like his sex toy. The awesome part of this is that I just heard today's episode, and right after I submit this, I'm going to sign the petition to eliminate the statute of limitations on ch child sexual abuse in California. Thank you for that. Uh, abject of my expression writes about her depression. I spend most of my days off in bed because I'm exhausted from trying to prove how, quote, okay I am. About her PTSD, going into dissociative episode anytime someone tries to have a serious discussion with me, because as a child, those, quote, serious discussions always led to physical abuse. Um, that's another thing. You know, people that have never experienced trauma have no idea how laden the world is with triggers, sounds, sights, smells, words, times of year. Um, snapshot from her life. I was talking with my therapist, talking about my dissociative episodes, and then I went into one because even trying to recall what happened, uh, that triggered it, triggered me. My therapist could tell something was wrong because my eyes glazed over and I was breathing strangely. I was able to recognize that I was in a dissociative episode and brought myself back. She said, that was an important step in my recovery. I now find myself falling into miniature dissociative episodes throughout my workday, at home, with friends, etc. It's scary, but I'm glad that I now understand what's going on and that I can bring myself out of it. Any comments to make the podcast better? Provide links to places where people can find support groups. I live in the far west suburbs of Chicago, and all that's around me are AA and church groups. Uh, try going to helpguide.org. That's H-E-L-P-G-U-I-D-E dot org. Uh, they're a good uh, resource. They have no commercial interest uh, in in anything. It was founded by a, um, a philanthropist uh, couple who I believe lost a son to uh, overdose or something. I, I, I can't remember, but um, that would be a good place to, to start. Uh, and also Google uh, the name of your town or city and uh, either Lofi Therapy or Support Group and, uh, and the, the name of an issue that you're looking to get help around. Uh, this was filled out. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself getting better all the time. He is... Bisexual in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, I've ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I hit puberty at 10 to 11, my mother continued to change slash be nude around me. When I told her it made me uncomfortable, she would laugh it off or make fun of me. 
abuse on top of the abuse. I felt that there was something deeply wrong with me for both wanting to look at her and for not wanting to be nude around each other. Looking back on it, I think that's a normal reaction. It stopped when I was around 12. Um, now, that is absolutely a form of sexual abuse. Um, and um, feel free to email me about the thing I mentioned to the to the other person. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, bullied at school, and then uh, almost everyone I knew, family, friends, etc., were pretty homophobic growing up. I never thought it had affected me until I told a friend I was bi for the first time and burst out crying in relief when he was okay with it. When I was 18, I told my father I wanted to see a psychiatrist. He told me I just needed to, quote, man up. You know, if all somebody wrote in a survey was, I, I told my parent I wanted to get help, and they said to man up, I would I would say that I would know so much about them just from that. That says so much. Any family that believes that just manning up instead of getting counseling, any person raising that family needs counseling. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents both have so much love in them, I just wish they knew how to express it. That's so true about so many people. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why we get so trapped in our recovery is, is that we think to give weight to the pain that we experienced means that we're saying that that other person is all bad. But people are complicated. People can be both dark and light. And to give weight to the dark that was foisted upon us does not mean that there was never any light in that person. Um, And then what complicates it sometimes, too, is that some really sick caregivers fake the light so it's easier to keep putting the dark on the child and um and they may not even know fully consciously that they're that they're doing that um darkest thoughts i used to have incest fantasies sisters cousins aunts i felt disgusted by this i thought that if anyone found out they would hate me i thought i was unlovable and my parents Love didn't count because they didn't know how disgusting I really was. I still don't like hugging family members, especially my parents. Darkest secrets. When I was 12, my sister and I were wrestling during a sleepover at a friend's house. I lost control and pulled her against me in a way that was clearly sexual. My friend noticed and I stopped pretty quickly. I would try not to look at her sexually, but I failed sometimes. Although I don't think... I've ever really wanted to have sex with her. I'm still not able to look at her without feeling some guilt and shame. When I started masturbating, I quickly noticed I couldn't stop and would hit myself afterwards. I promised never to have a girlfriend in case I lost control and raped her. My self-harm quickly escalated into um, cutting deep gashes into my arms and legs. My mother noticed, but I think I was just too much for her to handle. She never spoke to me about it. Apart from those moments, I haven't had any romantic or sexual experiences in person. I haven't even kissed anyone. How could intimacy not be terrifying when you had a mom who's supposed to protect you doing the very thing she is supposed to be protecting you from? Um, You were a child when 
you did that with your sister, you should forgive yourself. Um, you didn't understand what was being done to you and that it was how you were expressing uh, your hormones. You might try bringing it up and, and telling your sister, you know, I I can't forgive myself for this and I just want to let you know it's, it still eats me up inside. I don't know if you even remember it. It might help get off your chest and I have a feeling that your sister would probably say, stop beating yourself up. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about having to turn down girls. Maybe they're too young or too drunk. It's not sexual. I just like trying to imagine someone wanting me, but the idea of actually going through with it makes it feel unreal. Uh, what if anything we'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my sister how deeply sorry and disgusted with myself I am. She was always seemed too happy. I just hope it isn't a mask. I don't want to bring it up. I don't think it is as big of a deal to her as it is to me, and I think she would just want to forget about it. You know, if if she was raised by the same mom that you have, she's going to have a lot of issues, and I would think the least of them will be that moment that happened between the two of you. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? To be able to love someone totally and completely without all my baggage and experiences getting in the way. Here's the cool part. You can find somebody where your baggage, you know, quote-unquote baggage and experiences will actually help you get closer to that person because you'll have to get vulnerable with them to be honest about what's going on inside you day to day. And then you'll have moments where they're accepting those. And to me, that's what true intimacy is built on, is not how good we can look around each other, but how much we can not judge the other person for for being flawed, while also knowing when something is toxic and needs to be you know, gotten away from. Thank you. Thank you for your survey. That, that That's all that I wanted to, uh, to read of that, but um, it really moved me. You sound like such a sweet man. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by no really, I'm just tired. I don't even know what, what, what she means, but it made me laugh. Um, and she writes, a little over a year ago, I found out that my favorite photographer was doing a photography workshop in Iceland. This woman was the very reason I became a photographer, and to learn from her was my lifelong dream. I spent six months fundraising and working so I could be able to afford the trip, and I had so many wonderful, supportive people telling me that they would love to help me achieve my dreams and that they couldn't wait to see the pictures. Well, I got the money, all the money I needed, bought my plane tickets, and started to get really psyched about spending two weeks in Iceland with my hero. Then, a month before I was supposed to leave, she died. 
I spent three days laying in bed crying, knowing that all my dreams were now unattainable and feeling guilty for taking money from so many people. I also partially believed that her death was my fault because I have the worst luck in the world. So naturally, I assume everything is my fault. After realizing that I had already purchased my plane tickets, I decided that I was going to go to Iceland anyway all by myself. I had never done anything like this, and for once in my life, I felt a little brave, not only for traveling abroad by myself, but also for not allowing my despair to keep me from doing something exciting and scary. Those two weeks in Iceland changed my life. I learned a lot about myself and a lot about a country I had previously known very little about. I even met one of my favorite Icelandic bands because they were on my return flight with me. Oh, and I'm very proud of the photos that I took while I was there. P.S. You might also like to know that my grandmother was one of the people who was most excited about my trip. She couldn't help me financially, but she told me she was so excited and that she couldn't wait to get a postcard from me in the mail. She also died. <laughs> Thank you for that. Two days before the trip, uh, her grandmother died. Let's see. I think I just wanted to read a part of this. I'm sorry, I'm a little scattered right now. Oh, okay. I just want to read a part of this one. Um, this is filled out by uh, converting my closet into a fallout shelter. And uh, they're gender fluid, were the victim of sexual abuse, never reported it. Uh, they're in their 20s, bisexual, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, been emotionally abused. Did I say? Uh, yeah, victim of sexual abuse, never reported it. Darkest thoughts. Since I was about 10 years old, my dream was to steal a car, something big enough to fit a mattress in the back and just abandon everything and everyone in my life, disappear and never be found, shave my head, change my name, cut off my tits and become a bog witch or something. Actually, I've heard that the market for bog witchery is blowing up right now. Um, and by the way, not only have I had, except for the cutting the boobs off, I'm um, becoming a witch and shaving the head, I have had some version of that fantasy my entire life. I remember the exact model of van that I wanted to get when I was like 19 years old and just live in, just go drive around the country and have no obligations and not see anybody I know and just be completely self-sufficient and left alone. And um, you're not alone in that one. Anyway, Darkest Secrets. I have to be up for work in four hours. I can't sleep. I'm going to pour my heart into this survey instead. Hopefully it'll ease me somehow. Um, the Orlando shooting rattled me to the core. I've spent half the day fighting off crying fits. And let's see when this was filled out. This was filled out in uh, June, the middle of June. Um, I spent half the day fighting off crying fits. It's all just, it all just serves a reminder of why I'm almost completely closeted. All my life, I've been a sex object for cis men. For those of you that don't know, cis means uh, men who uh, identify... Um, whose gender matches the uh, body that they were born into, as opposed to somebody who was born, you know, for example, with a female body, but feels 
uh, inside uh, as if they are male. Um, all my life I've been a sex object for cis men. I date them because they're easier to hook, not because I like them. As people, some of them are okay, but I can give maybe one example out of a dozen uh, that I can remember where I was actually sexually attracted to a man. I've always been more sexually attracted to women, but too afraid to approach them. When it came out to my mom that I was bi, I got the usual denial. Oh, you'll settle down someday. You just haven't found the right man yet. I can see myself finding, quote, the right man just to appease this cultural norm that wants to beat me back into the pre-assigned gender box. The doctor who first saw my infant vagina decided I fit. Future me is fucking miserable. Future me is Betty Draper shooting pigeons in the backyard. Future me is dead by 35 because at 22 I'm already exhausted of living this lie. I have a wonderful boyfriend who I love as a person, as a friend, uh, but I'm just not sexually attracted to him at all. It kills me to admit because he's so sweet and kind and the only relationship I've ever had that you could ever define as stable. But I look into those puppy eyes and know I can't break up with him. I can't break him. I can't do anything to hurt him, even if it keeps me in agony. Emotionally, I've been cheating on him with someone who literally plans to kill me. That's fine with me, I guess. It makes me sad that I'm stuck like this. This fear might keep me from ever holding hands with a girl in public or being able to call someone my wife. I've only hooked up with girls twice before. I don't think I'll ever have a meaningful relationship with a girl. I think my two roads now are enter a lifelong relationship with one man-child or be tortured and killed by another. Either way, or even if none of these work out, I don't imagine myself living much longer. I don't want to live in this world with so much hate over such beautiful things as love and discovering your own identity, only to realize you can't do anything to move in that direction is fucking hell. I'm so tired of seeing death. I'm exhausted. Everyone I know is exhausted. One of my friends had a family member who was in that club and died. They're distraught. We are living beings and they treat us like a blight. A biblical plague. They praise our deaths and mock our mourning. Uh, to die because of it is to give in to terror, just like the scumbag who did this wanted us to do. But damn, do these cunts make it tempting. Your su survey is one of the most moving things I've ever Read And I think every person that's li listening to this podcast right now wants to drive to wherever you are and rescue you. But we can't. Only you can decide whether or not you're going to extricate yourself. And my suggestion is if you can't break up with him, seek the help of a professional who can aid you in taking the steps to do that. I'd also suggest if he really loves you, really truly loves you as a human being, he would want you to be happy. If he is a good person, he will look back after you having broken up with him and say, good for you for doing that. I'm so happy for you. 
and he will find somebody else. People do. People do. But here's the most important thing that I wanted to, to say about staying alive is we need you. The world needs sensitive people. The world needs people who have more love in their hearts than hate. So stick around for us. I know that sounds fucking corny and like I'm being Mr. Touchy-feely, you know, podcast host, but that's what I thought when I read it is... Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't know. I just want to kiss girls. What, if anything, do you wish for? Do I get three? I wish I could feel comfortable and safe being my authentic self. I wish I had an incredibly fluffy puppy to lick my tears away. And I wish Donald Trump's fat fucking head would explode a la scanners on live television. Amen. Um, I actually, uh, we don't even give our dogs water. My dogs live on my tears. And when they start to get thirsty, I have to think about things that are really sad. So that's actually the only reason I created the surveys is um, otherwise my dogs will uh, shrivel up and die. I so want to go back and rewind and cut that out. Uh, but I just, I just loved your survey. Um, she writes, I'm out to a few friends as trans, but only online. My therapist also knows it and is the only safe person I can talk to about it near me. I would probably be fired if my work found out about it. I'm pretty sure that would be illegal for them to do it, but it might depend on what state you live in. And from the description you had of the people that are around you, it doesn't sound like you're in a very uh, open-minded state. Maybe consider moving someplace where you would be comfortable. Um, and it fucking sucks that that has to be an option in today's society for some people. Um, but... I don't know. Do I give too much advice? I'm starting to second guess myself. I'm just going to get to some... Uh, I'm just going to get to some uh, happy moments. This one is actually, oh yeah, this isn't the one I was thinking of, but I'm going to read it. No, I'm going to skip that one. Two more surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by um, Big Tallulah. And she writes, uh, my son came to me at age two and I shouldered the brunt of all his anger about the trauma he suffered in those two years, two short years while attempting to manage my own severe anxiety and depression. In the first six months, he and I got maybe one full night of sleep, and I was covered in bruises because he would hit and kick whenever he got too comfortable with me. Then he caught his first cold while in my home, and I held him nearly around the clock. At the end of the last day of his cold, he put his head on my shoulder for the first time, and that's when I knew he would let me be his mom. In that moment, I felt so glad that I never drank myself to death 
because I would have missed meeting my strong and amazing son. Sometimes I just don't have, I just don't. And this is the last survey, and bear with me because it's very dark, but hang in there. And you're like, why would you? It doesn't end. Stop explaining it, Paul. Just read the fucking survey. This is filled out by Tracy. And this is actually from the Shame and Secret survey, but I wanted to, to end with this one. She writes, um... Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. And she wrote, um, I woke up on the floor of a dorm room I did not recognize. I sat up and looked around at the half-naked bodies of five males who had not yet woken up. Some of them I recognized from parties. A few of them I had never seen before. Where was I? Why weren't my friends there? Why couldn't I remember anything, anything at all, from the preceding 12 hours? I only had two mixed drinks. How could I have blacked out from that? What the hell was going on? Then I looked at my body. My bottom half was completely naked. I just stared at it. My mind went blank. Then the bodily sensations hit me. Both vagina and my anus throbbed with pain. Wait, does this mean? Could I have? Did I have sex? Was it with one of these guys? Why did my ass hurt? Why would I ever do that? What is going on? Where were my clothes? Where was I? Where were my friends? Why did they leave me? What happened to me? I found my pants but no underwear. I clothed myself and desperately wanted to sprint the fuck out of there, but all I was able to do was hobble because of the severe pain between my thighs. Nothing felt real. I remember these words circling around in my head. My body is filth. I am filth. This is my fault. After that morning, everything changed. When I was alone, I would often sit in front of my mirror, heaving with sobs as I slapped myself across the face without mercy and punched my body so hard I would be covered in bruises. Something else I had to hide. I ended up failing half my classes that semester. Hit it. God forbid my parents or friends find out that I was a failure. Inexcusable. Everything about who I was and the life I led had literally overnight become imbued with darkness, sadness, shame, secrets, and self-loathing. By my early 20s, I developed chronic migraine headaches, severe depression, anxiety, and panic attacks, as well as an addiction to marijuana. I suffered every minute of every single day in my body, in my mind, in my heart, and in my soul. I am now 30 and I've been in intensive psychotherapy for almost four years. It's taken years to get to this point, but now a new narrative that night in college has emerged. I did not do something horrible. Something horrible and unforgivable was done to me, possibly by more than one person. I will never remember the events of that night, yet I know now that I did not and would not have ever consented to vaginal and anal penetration by a person or persons I barely knew. I was drugged. 
I was incapacitated. I was raped. And it was never, ever my fault. My mental and physical health are still fragile, and the parts of myself that fell to pieces are still in the process of being reintegrated. I've made a lot of progress, but it is also still really hard at times. I have periods of relative stability, and I also have setbacks. This is the reality of healing from trauma. There's no set course. It's one day at a time. Since starting therapy, the following statements ring increasingly true to me, and I write them now with pride and strength. I am worthy of love and respect unconditionally and without question. I am brave, so brave. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am safe. I am alive. I am a survivor. I didn't know I could write these words with so much resolve and candor. I'm so fucking proud of myself. You guys are just amazing. Just amazing. The feelings that come up in me every week reading about your lives and the fucking strides that you make. And those of you that don't make them, but still hang in there. Um, it gives me so much purpose in my life when I read things like that. It takes away that voice that had been in my head for so much of my life that always told me that I'd blown it, that the future held nothing good for me. We are, we are all in this together. Don't believe your brain when it tells you that you're not. If I had never asked for help, I would never get to read these fucking amazing stories and feel so much fucking love in my life. Now I'm really starting to hate myself, like fucking Sally Fields accepting a an award. And how's that for an old reference? He said, jumping into his rascal in his plaid shorts and black socks. Oh my God. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for all the horrible things that I've survived because I get to feel what you write. If I hadn't ever gotten help, I would never be able to feel the joy of her surviving those things. And I would have never understood the pain 
of her experiencing those. And I say all of that in the hopes that one of you listening right now that is afraid to ask for help will say, maybe Paul isn't full of shit this one time. I'm going to pick up that phone or I'm going to make plans with that friend that feels safe and I'm going to talk about what's really going on with me. Just remember that you're not alone. And thank you so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.